From the studios of WGMU in Fairfax, Virginia, this is Loose Fagan Indeterminate. Loose Fagan Indeterminate is the podcast of the Economic Society at George Mason University, a registered student organization committed to guiding students, organizing events, and provoking discussion to amplify George Mason's reputation as a destination for economic students. I'm your host, Dominic Pino. I'll be your co-host tonight. I'm James Slaka. And our guest today is Molly Harnish. Neither I nor James know who she is or how she got into the studio, but we're going to interview her anyway. I'm kidding, of course. Molly is a junior in our esteemed department and just recently transitioned to her new title as Economic Society Webmaster Emerita because she will be studying abroad in Oxford next semester. She is especially interested in environmental economics and explaining why Hardin's Tragedy of the Commons is the worst paper ever. (laughs) More on okay, that. Not the worst. <laughs> <laughs> More on that in due course. In addition to her studies, she works at Mercatus Center Academic and Student Programs and interned last summer at the Richmond Fed. She does not speak for either of those entities on this podcast. Uh, she is from the Philadelphia area where she recently completed a half marathon. And if you ever need to find her in a crowd, it's easy because she has red hair. Thanks so much for being here today. Thanks for having me. It's going to be fun. I'm excited. <laughs> <laughs> All right. How's that post-race recovery going? It's going. Um, I have run once since finishing the half marathon. So That's was, insane. Yeah. Well, it's not that insane. <laughs> it's, been like, it's been a week and a half. So. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, it's it's been going well. I'm surviving. Do you want to brag about your time? I, I mean, it wasn't particularly impressive. <laughs> it was the time I went in two hours and 15 minutes, and I got two hours and 13. So that was exciting. But That is know. exciting. Uh, just finishing it is exciting as far as I'm it concerned. It was very exciting. Yeah. All right. Uh, do you have any economic insights on running after training for all these months? Uh, <laughs> um, there's an opportunity cost to it, and that is sleeping. <laughs> um, yeah. <laughs> the, that's, that's my biggest one. Um, yeah, the sunk cost fallacy is really effective motivator, I think, mm-hmm. um, because when you're at, you know, mile seven or whatever, and you kind of want, you're like, eh, you know, I'd rather go, you know, eat something or <laughs> not be doing this, and... And you're like, well, I've already been out here for, you know, an hour, an hour and 10 minutes. I might as well just keep going. I'm almost done. It's, I mean, it's not great economic logic, but it works. Yep. Keeps you moving for sure. Well, Richmond is a great place to run. It is. There are a lot of parks there. There are a lot of parks there. There's a lot of trails. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. There's there's that bridge. Belle Isle. The Belle Isle Bridge? Yeah. Yeah. You can, like, walk under it? You can walk under it. It's pretty cool. Yeah, it is very cool. But, so Richmond's a great place to run, but you were there this summer with the Federal Reserve. A bank in Richmond. Um, can you tell us anything about what that was like? It was incredible. I loved it. Um, I loved, well, I'll talk about Richmond first because mm-hmm. you mentioned it. Um, it is a great city. I moved there by myself and I didn't know anybody, so that was a little terrifying, but it was a lot of fun. Um, it's a great city. Highly recommend. Lots of good food. That's what everyone says about it, I think. <laughs> um, and I agree. Um, but my job at the Fed was, was really awesome. I was the economics writing intern. Um, so I worked in their publications department, um, and one my big project was to write, uh, kind of it was there, I had to do research for it, but it was it was for a magazine for a popular audience, so it wasn't mm-hmm. like a research paper or anything. But so that was my big project. Uh, it was the feature article, ended up being the cover article, which was really really cool. Um, and to see my name in print, I actually just got the the print version of the magazine pretty recently, and that was that was really exciting. Um, so. It's a piece on the economics of climate change. Um, like Dominic said, I'm really interested in environmental econ. So that was you know, really cool to be able to write that and do a lot of research. And I'm taking a class on environmental econ right now. Um, so it's kind of been cool to, to use that to draw from the research I did this summer and to pull that into the class that I'm taking right now. Um, but it was an excellent experience. My coworkers were great. 
and they have a really cool intern program. So if you're interested in applying and you're from that area or just want to, you know, move there and hang out there for a summer, um, I definitely recommend it. It was a great experience. I think we know here at the George Mason Economics uh, <laughs> Department, we're not exactly the biggest fans of the Federal Reserve. Uh, can you give us any insight onto uh, any monetary policy stuff that you <laughs> might have uh, encountered while there? Um, they kept me away from from the monetary policy, believe it or not. <laughs> Jerome Powell and I didn't really you know, touch base on anything. Shocking. Um, <laughs> That's shocking. <laughs> um, maybe they saw the Mason on my on my transcript. And, yeah. No, um, it was it was cool to be in a research department that was like different from Mercatus. Um it was. It's just been really interesting to have that experience of being around. You know, at, at Mercatus, I work with you know a different group of people than I worked with at the Fed, and it has been really interesting to see the different ways that they approach research questions, see the different questions that they asked. Um, that was a really valuable experience for me, for sure. So, no insights on on monetary policy or, or any of that. <laughs> but it was <laughs> from where I stood, it was a really interesting you know experience. I guess when most people hear about the Federal Reserve, their mind doesn't instantly go to the environment. No. <laughs> so, so what was it? How is that related to their mission, and, and how did how does that part of their their program? So that's actually it's a really interesting question and a very kind of not touchy, but uh, you know it's it's a very recent question. So the San Francisco Fed has put out some research recently on climate change and the financial risks of climate change. Um, so, for example, you know sea level rises that threatens coastal properties, and that might make investors a little wary of you know maybe I'm not going to buy a house on the beach this year because who knows in ten years it might not even be there anymore. Um, so there's kind of that to consider, and if it's a whole systemic risk risk because obviously insurance could cover that you know one instance, but if that's happening all over, all across the board, um, then that's a whole other problem. So the San Francisco Fed has really been taking the lead in doing research on that. Um, as for it affecting monetary policy, it, you know, hasn't. Um, Jerome Powell actually responded to a letter from a Hawaii senator um, in April of 2019, I want to say. Um, and he said that the Federal Reserve's response was um, in response to natural disasters. That's that's kind of the extent of the response um, to climate change that the Fed would take was only, you know, um, responses to natural disasters and the direct impacts of that rather than changing monetary policy to accommodate for that. Um, but other central banks have been doing different things. They've been um, investing in green bonds um, and that kind of thing. So it's it's definitely different central banks are taking different angles on it. And that's part of the piece that I wrote um, for them this summer focused on climate change and central banks. I have to know, what is a green bond? <laughs> so a green bond is – it's like any other bond except it's you're investing in a green project. So uh, something that, you know – is investing in clean energy or something like that. How did you get this opportunity to work at the Federal Reserve? Um, it's got to be pretty competitive, right? I don't know how competitive it is. I can't, All right. can't vouch for that. I it's probably pretty competitive. I would, I would, <laughs> I if, I, if I had to guess, I'd say it's pretty competitive. <laughs> the fact that she doesn't know, I gather she's very qualified. <laughs> but, uh, but, what, but what do you think? How did you get this opportunity? And how did you have the, the, this chance to move to Richmond like this? Uh, okay, so this is a very textbook answer, but I applied. I went, <laughs> I went I went to the career fair and I met somebody from the Fed there and she, you know, told me about it. I had no idea there were research opportunities. Um, she told me about it. I looked it up. It was like 11 p.m. I should have been doing homework. Mm-hmm. And I immediately wrote the cover letter for the job that wasn't due for like three months and I called my boyfriend and I was like this is it I'm writing the cover letter right now and he was like what is wrong with you (laughs) (laughs) um so it just just felt like a a really good fit and so you know I I went and did the application did the interviews and all that and it was a pretty 
you know, I just, it was a lot of Google searching and, and career fair. Go to the so, career fair. It's important. So go to the career fair and yes. don't do your homework. And don't do your homework. Yes. Okay. You heard so it here first. That's, that's the secret. That's <laughs> the secret. It's great. That's the secret to getting in there. Once you were there, what was the, what was the work environment like? I mean, cause you're, you're at one of the most powerful institutions in the world. Or at least a branch of one of the most powerful institutions in the world, really, when you when when it comes down to it. I mean, the dollar is the most, you know, it's the currency of the world, and they exert a significant amount of control over that. So, what what is that work environment like? Is it is it different than other things you've experienced? Um, I don't know if I could compare it to other. It was incredible. Like it was really everyone was really kind and wonderful. Um, really help. Like you know, they understood that I was new to this. I was the intern, um, and in some ways. It's really nice being the intern because no one expects you to, <laughs> to know what's going on. Yeah. And so they're really very willing to answer questions and very patient. Um, so my coworkers at the Fed were really great with kind of just knowing that I didn't really know what was going on at first and, and helping me with that and listening to what I had to say. Um, it was They were great. It was a really great work environment. Are you working there with any other interns? Was it primarily just with the full-time staff? Um, so. It was the whole intern program. Uh, there were about 40 or 45 of us. Um, but then in my department, I was the only intern. Yeah, so that was it had a nice mix of there were a lot of college students that I was around. But then, you know, for most of my day to day, I was, you know, with, you know, people who had the jobs that I could maybe see myself applying for. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I always think that's one of the really underrated parts about internships is that you're working with people that have actual jobs. <laughs> and it yeah. seems like really obvious but then once you actually experience that, it's it totally it's totally different because you can kind of look at this and be like, all of these people got through college, and they're employed. Yes, it's encouraging. It's just <laughs> encouraging, isn't it? And you can kind of see that, and you could be like, those are people that I could see myself being, and you can make relate, and you can have a relationship with them um, that can you know help you directly to get a job in the future. But it can also just help you in terms of learning new skills and and just seeing how people behave because you obviously don't get that in a classroom because everyone's incentives are different and the behavior is totally different so um yeah for sure also being with fellow econ nerds at an <laughs> institution like the fed i'm sure there's no short supply of them oh yeah no it was, it was fun one of my really good intern friends there had like a one of the it was actually a um why am i blanking on the name of tyler cowan uh, marginal revolution um, the stickers that they have that are like MR equals MC. She had a sticker like that in the back of her phone. I was like, hey, I know. I know where that's from. <laughs> yep. revolution. So, yeah, that was that was a lot of fun. <laughs> How about any cool stories about Richmond in general? Big city, lots of stuff going on. Yeah, I mean, I don't think if I have any good stories about Richmond in general. It was, it was a lot of fun. Like, I just really enjoyed it. It was the first time I've – so, like Dominic said, I'm from Philadelphia, and I lived in various Philly suburbs for my whole life. I have three little sisters, and – they're a handful, and <laughs> I had never lived by myself before. I mean, you, you move to college, and you live, like, quote-unquote, by yourself, but you live with, like, thousands of other teenagers and young adults. It's not the same thing. And, you know, your parents, are you're paying room and board and all that. So it was literally me just moving to Richmond and subletting a, a room in a house by myself and paying my rent and buying my groceries, and that was a really good experience for me to just – like support myself in that way and just be like okay I can do like you were saying earlier Dominic with it's valuable to be an intern and go and see people doing you know real life and say oh I also can do what you are doing I also can do this job that you are doing for me to be like 
I can also live this life that other people are living mm-hmm. um, in general. And Richmond is, like I said, a lot of fun. I had this a coffee house that I loved, Lamplighter, if you're ever down there. It's fantastic. I love coffee, so that's... They're not paying us. This is a... Yeah, geez. this is, yeah, yeah. not sponsored. This I just is, really love this coffee place. There's nothing wrong with that. You can yeah. you can talk about yeah. that. so that's good. Um, so you've mentioned uh, you mentioned it before. Uh, I mentioned in the intro, you also work at the Mercatus Center here on campus with academic and student programs. I do. And our last guest was um, Dr. Rosalino Candela, who is also there. Um, do you have any... Good Rosalino stories? <laughs> I do not have any good Rosalino oh. stories. He's great. <laughs> he is great. He's terrific. He was a great guest, and we love to have him on, and he's yeah. such a friendly guy. Yeah. But what is it that you exactly do there at the Mercatus Center? Um, and, uh, yeah, just, just tell us what you do. Yeah, so uh, my title is a program assistant, which doesn't tell you much about what I do. Um, well, you assist with programs. I do assist with programs. That's true. Um, I, uh, if I was a program associate, I'd associate with programs. Well, that's, that's totally <laughs> um, different. Yeah. <laughs> it is. Um, no, so I work with primarily with social media and marketing. Um, so basically trying to get the word out about our fellowships. Um, if you ever walk through the JC and see someone tabling with a big pink Mercatus tablecloth, it might be me. Stop and say hi. Um, I was there earlier today. She's the um, one with the red hair. I'm the one with the red hair. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it's. I basically, like, I help post on social media, um, come up with different ways to advertise about our fellowships and tell people about them. So how do you, how does that work exactly? Because we all see social media out there, (laughs) and we kind of know in the back of our minds that someone had to make it, someone had to write all those posts, but you are that person. I am that person. So, So what goes into that, and how do you, how do you structure that so that you can get the message out that you want? Oh, that's a good question. I mean, I have a great team um, that I work with, and I started as an intern in January 2018. Oh, my gosh, yeah, it was almost two years ago. Um, that's crazy. And they really were helpful, and, you know, this is kind of what a tweet looks like, and this is kind of what a Facebook – I mean, you have different audiences, and you kind of have to mm-hmm. think about that. So, like, I don't have a Twitter. Dominic keeps trying to convince me to make a Twitter. I don't have a Twitter. He'd be uh, great on Twitter. <laughs> okay. Um, <laughs> but – it's a very different audience than Facebook or, you know, you're trying to grab people's attention a little faster. Whereas on Facebook, you're kind of, it's a little more leisurely and you have a different audience. And so, yeah, you really have to think a lot about your audience and you have to grab their attention really, really quickly. Like the way we pay attention to things in like two second increments now. And so you have to be able to say in, you know, one sentence or two sentences, like this is what this entire research paper is about and this is why you should read it or this is what this fellowship is about and this is why you should apply to it. And that's difficult. So I've been really grateful to have the help of um, the rest of the ASP team to just be like, hey, maybe you should phrase this a little cleaner or something like that. Um, And I just think it's a lot of practice. It's like day in and day out, practice, 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 and eventually you get there. So. Mm -hmm. And what about LinkedIn posts? LinkedIn posts, <laughs> um, I don't know. I don't know. They're pretty much it's the same kind of thing where you still have to condense it. You could those can be a little longer. Yeah. Um, different LinkedIn audience than different Twitter. Different LinkedIn audience than Twitter for sure. Um, so yeah, and it, that's definitely that was an interesting thing too. I was able to help um, kind of kickstart the LinkedIn for ASP, um, and that's just kind of been interesting figuring out like how long is too long for a post, and you know what do we put on there and it's definitely it's a lot of attention to detail too. I think is something that I've gained from that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and one of the other things ASP does writing wise is they put out spotlights of people who have done the programs in the past. And I know you've been part of 
creating those. So tell us a little bit about that process. Yeah, that's been fun. I actually got to interview a couple of alumni of our programs. Um, Can you say who? I cannot say who. Oh. Well, I mean, they're public. They're on the website. You yeah. can look and figure it all out. All right, all right. <laughs> um, but, yeah, so it's been – that's been really cool. Um, I – I have a running joke that everything I do is because I did yearbook in high school and that's where I gained like all of my useful skills and it's kind <laughs> of true um but that was one of the things you know you have to learn to interview people and it's hard like what Dominic does is hard like it's it's really difficult to interview people and kind of get the answers not necessarily that you want but get ones that actually are interesting um it's a it's a hard skill so I kind of had to figure that out and you know I interviewed these alumni and then I would kind of condense their answers into these spotlights um but now you can you know they're up on the website and you can read them and see oh hey this person you know who maybe wasn't interested in grad school at first or was working full-time while they got you know whether while they were a fellow or something like that can do it and you know maybe I can too is kind of the idea behind that mm-hmm. and to obviously give recognition to our alumni who are super incredible and do amazing things yeah, yeah. and so those are alumni from the from from which fellowships all of them actually all we of have them. all but one up now and we're working on that last one so mm-hmm. Can you run through the fellowships for I listeners? I can run through the fellowships for listeners. Um, so we have the Joseph Schumpeter Fellowship. That's for undergrads. Um, and I've been a part of that, actually. This is my third semester, and it's a really cool experience. Um, you basically meet six times a week, and you read um, research papers or excerpts from books um, from Hayek program scholars or other scholars. Um, it's not always Hayek. I mean, we've read stuff by Adam Smith. <laughs> um and by Hayek himself, actually. Um, and then we they're, get they're Hayek program scholars in spirit. Yes. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, and so we, we read those and get together to talk about them. Um, sometimes we have the scholars who wrote the thing that we read in the room, which is cool because that really turns into a and a session a lot of the time. Um, and it's a great, you know. They feed us. <laughs> mm-hmm. We get paid. It's mm-hmm. great. I apply for the Joseph Shepherder Fellowship. It's an excellent, excellent opportunity. And how, how do people apply for that? Um, it's on the Mercatus website, asp.mercatus.org. Um, and then there's a list of all the fellowships like right there on the homepage. And you click on Joseph Shepherder Fellowship and click on Apply Now. Yeah. Awesome. Fill out the application. Yeah. And then what are the other uh, opportunities available? That's the only undergraduate one, it's correct? It's the only undergrad one, yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then graduate students have? Yes. So we have the PhD fellowship, um, which is for PhD students at George Mason in economics, MA students at George Mason, um, the Bastiat fellowship, which is um, for students outside of Mason who are interested in public policy, law, that kind of thing, um, economics. It can also include Mason students as well. Um, Morgan Stern, which is about applying quantitative methods to uh, political economy, and the Adam Smith Fellowship, um, which is also for students outside of Mason, um, and it's generally a little more interdisciplinary. It's We've got philosophy students there, history students, as well as economics and political science and that kind of thing. Um, that's been the cool thing is the interdisciplinary nature of a lot of our fellowships um, because I've gone to a, a few of the, the colloquiums that they have with the fellows, and that's been interesting to talk to people from different fields and, and hear from them. So, yeah, really cool, really interesting opportunities. So, mm-hmm. yeah. Any particular scholar that you've heard from that's been particularly impactful? We had um, Jamie Lemke come out and talk about women's rights um, and polycentricity. In the Schumpeter Fellowship? In the Schumpeter Fellowship, yeah. Um, that was really cool. That was that was super interesting. Um what did she talk about? Um, she talked about how... <laughs> so give me a little more than that. Yeah, <laughs> that's fair. That's fair. Um, so I've been spending all day advertising it to people in like two senses, so now yeah. I get to kind of expand more. Um, so basically married women didn't have property rights a lot of the time, um, 
and Dr. Lemke's research looks at how married women tended to have more property rights in Western states, and she kind of theorizes that uh, this is one, a result of polycentricity and the ability of different state and territory governments to say, oh, well, this is how property rights are going to work for us. Um, and then married women or women who were intending to be married on the East Coast looked out West and said, oh, hey, like, I have the opportunity to own property if I move out there. And if I stay here, that's that might not as much be an option for me. Um, so she looked at um, kind of that, how how Western states were able to do that in order to kind of draw, their motive was to draw population out there. Um, and that's a result of polycentricity and the, the competing governance system. Sounds like a perfect example of the uh, voting with your uh, feet hypothesis yep. there. Yep. yep, yep, we talked about that. I wanted to move on to a different topic that you are knowledgeable on, and that <laughs> is... Oh, boy. <laughs> well, that is networks in Congress. Oh, yes. Uh, this we can is talk a, about R now? Yeah, we can yes. talk about R, and we can talk about the... The cool graphs you made. I yes, so, I loved those graphs. They're as difficult right. as it is to talk about graphs on an audio medium, I think we can pull it off. All right. So so Look at this graph, everybody. Yeah. So but what? You can't. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so what was your research about there, and and what did you do with it? Um, so I assisted Dr. Jennifer Victor in her research project about congressional cooperation. Um, and that was with the Shar School's URAP program, which is their undergraduate research assistant program. Um, it's an incredible program. I highly recommend. Um, and Dr. Victor is excellent to work with. Um, so basically, my job was I was on the, her data analysis team. And we had we had a lot of da- data. A lot. It took a long time to load. <laughs> I'll tell you that much. Um, about caucus memberships. Um, and we were trying to see if being a member of a caucus, if two members of opposing parties if they were members of the same caucus if they would actually if they would vote together more or if that would actually drive them farther apart and kind of entrench them in their own views if they interacted with each other outside of you know normal congressional sessions um so what i did was make graphs of i'm trying to see if i I think it was the 103rd through 112 congresses um I don't know if I can explain these, but basically, like, n- imagine, like, little dots, but they're people. <laughs> the yeah. little dots represent people, and they're blue or red um, for Democrat or Republican. And you can kind of draw their relationships or graph their relationships to each other. So if, you know, blue and red are very, very isolated and on different sides of the graph, that's kind of like, oh, they're not really voting together. They're not really connected. They're not even maybe in caucuses together. There's a lot of polarization, basically. And if they're mixed up, then it's like, okay, they're talking to each other. They're voting together maybe the situation isn't as polarized as it might seem. Mm -hmm. Um, And from the graphs I did, which were very preliminary, and I'm actually kind of still working on this, um, it looks like as time went on, those Congresses got more and more polarized. Mm -hmm. Um, So, yeah, it was a a really excellent experience. I love R, if you couldn't tell from the (laughs) excited, we get to talk about R now. Um, And... It was it was a great experience to to do research. I, Mason is great because you have the opportunity to do undergraduate research in so many different ways. Because, you know, that's assisting a professor with their research, and so I kind of walked into an already existing research project and one that's continuing to go on, um, and kind of got to shadow, I guess, in effect, um, an established researcher. Um, and then, you know, we also have Oscar, and we have, um, you know, they encourage you to do your own undergraduate research projects as well, um, which is. I think a very special thing and and one that's a little more unique among, you know, higher education institutions. Mm-hmm. So back to the, the graphs you made, <laughs> yes. they had, just to give you an idea for listeners who haven't seen them, it's basically if there's a big blob of blue and a big blob of red, right. that means there's more polarization as opposed to if there's just one big blob that's blue and red, 
there's less polarization. Yes. And so it's it's like a really easy way to visually demonstrate polarization in Congress, which is something I think we hear about a lot, but it's difficult to kind of think of, well, what does that mean? I mean, aren't they supposed to not vote the same because they're in different parties? Like what's right. And so when you can kind of see like, yes, they were in different parties the whole time, but there was a time in the past when there was a lot more cooperation. At least that's what the research seems to show. Yeah. Yep. Yep. And what I what I created graphs of was um, caucus membership. So basically, they're, if they're, you know, back to these two dots, a line connecting them is they're in a caucus together. And the thicker the line, the more caucuses they're in together. So that was even just um, looking at her independent variable. And it wasn't even looking at co-voting yet, although um, that was something that we started working on towards the end of that semester. Um, so it's just to be able to see who was in caucuses together. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. And what are, the, what are caucuses? Um, they're just, they're groups outside of Congress. Like they're not, you know, official, official. Uh Um, but it's something that you can join, um, if you're interested in it. So there's, there's, there's caucuses on, there's hundreds of them. Some of them are like, I like drinking wine, you know, and some of them are about, you know, you have the freedom caucus and stuff Uh that that are a little more uh, politically inclined, I guess you could say. Yeah. Um, very, a little, maybe more ideological. Um, I think that can be a, a lot of where the ideology comes out, um, because sometimes parties are, they're ideological, but you can divide them into more ideologies than Democrat and Republican. Um, so that's kind of where it, that comes out a little bit. Mm-hmm. Are bipartisan caucuses common, like for Democrats and Republicans to be in the same one, or is that more of a rare phenomenon? Um, so that, it was more common than I thought it was going to be, actually. Um, I also just didn't know that there were so, because like, you hear about I heard about maybe like the Freedom Caucus and a couple others, and I was like, okay, that's what a caucus is. And then learning that there were so many other different ones and like interest-based ones was kind of fascinating to me. Um, and it does seem that there are a lot of caucuses where Republicans and Democrats will be in the same one. Some of them are, are more issue-oriented um, instead of ideology-oriented. So you know, maybe one about like foreign policy or something like that. Um, which isn't in and of itself an ideology, although obviously there are different ideologies about that issue. R. How R. did you learn? How did you learn about R? Was this from a class you took, or is this something you did on your own, or, or what was it that got you interested in that? And if you can give give people who are interested in R any good advice on how to use R, that would be appreciated. Don't give up. <laughs> that would be appreciated. <laughs> um, so. I took, well, the reason I started doing research with Dr. Victor is because I took her Gov 300 class the semester before, so a year a year ago. Um, and that was the class in which I learned R. Um, I had learned Python the semester before, so the idea of programming wasn't new to me. And I know, if anyone's listening to this and they're like computer science, I know that R is not. <laughs> I understand. <laughs> Python is an but this is a league than but, R. But this is an econ podcast and R is, R is the peak. I don't know if I would call R the peak. <laughs> R, is, R is as good as it gets for us econ people. I mean, R is great, and I, I love it. So I learned it in that class, um, but I was able to keep up that skill because like any other language, you learn a, a programming language, and then if you never use it again, it's like, oh, okay. Like if I tried to program something in Python, and I did this summer, it I had to Google a couple things. I was like, wait, how do you do this again? Um, but with R, I've just been fortunate to be able to just keep using it. And now I kind of now I use it instead of Excel. I'm like, oh, I need to make a graph of this. Like, let's pull up like, ggplot, which is a package in R, and just make a graph instead. Um, so yeah, it's definitely it was learning it in class and then sharpening my skills one through research and creating network graphs, and then now just like actually just using it to look at data. And that you kind of have to choose to do on your own, I think. All right, uh, and then. 
the last thing that we sort of teased in the introduction was about uh, more about environmental economics, mm-hmm. and you have a research project that you're working on about trees. I do about trees. There's, there, <laughs> it's it's about trees. Yes, um, about trees. So very loosely. Yeah. So 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 if you could give us a general idea of what that's about, and then we'll we'll see where that goes. Yeah. So I'm taking uh, an honors class this semester. Um, and it's, I, I want to say it's called the Multidisciplinary Research Seminar. It's basically offers an opportunity for students to have the equivalent of three credit hours to work on an independent research project. So um, it's a really great class, and there are people in my class that are using it to do all different things. One girl is starting a novel. Um, another girl is writing a graphic novel. I'm, there are other, people are doing research papers. Um, you could make a graphic novel about environmental econ to compete I with could. Kaplan. I could. <laughs> I could do that. Because apparently, not... <laughs> apparently the econ graphic novel genre is really opening up. <laughs> that is that is not my comparative advantage. I'll, I'll tell you that. Um, but yeah, so there's a lot of you know more traditional research projects um, as well as um, people actually collecting their own data. There are a couple of psychology students who are doing really interesting things. So it's a really cool class, and, and the whole point is to talk to people from different disciplines. And that's been really challenging for me is because I spend a lot of time around econ nerds, <laughs> and so I'm not really explaining. Hey. Like, hey, well, I mean, <laughs> <laughs> I'm not really explaining, like, the tragedy of the commons to anybody because if I say that, they're like, oh, yeah, the tragedy of the commons. Like, we can move on, you know, the prisoner's dilemma, whatever. Um, and so – it was kind of very humbling for me to say, oh, you know, the tragedy of the commons. And people would be like, what? And I was like, uh, oh, well, okay, I got to like back and, up a little and bit. And really, econ majors should not be as comfortable with the tragedy of the commons yes, as we are. But we'll get to that. We'll get to that. We can get to it right now. <laughs> you want to get to it right now? I want to okay. get to it right now. What, what is the, what is, so where does that term come from? Okay, so I originally thought it came from Garrett Hardin's paper, The Tragedy of the Commons. Mm-hmm. Um Apparently, the term was coined earlier, um, and the classic example is um, the English commons, where you know cattle are grazing on this field, and then every individual, you know, cattle owner has the incentive to say, "Okay, well, you know, I, I make more money the more cows I have, and the more cows I sell, and and they're better the more grass they eat. So I'm going to put as many cows as I can on this pasture, and then they're going to, and then every every other farmer is like, I'm going to do the same thing." Um, so it's it's you know uses this example of rational like an action that's rational for an individual ends up with no grass on the field and then everybody's worse off and no cows are eating any grass mm-hmm. so um, that's kind of the the classic example of it so it actually um, I think um, from what I've read most recently comes from before before Hardin mm-hmm. um, but Garrett Hardin has this paper called Tragedy of the Commons which has mm-hmm. kind of well made the term what it means today i think in terms of it being kind of prevalent in people's minds so but what's this paper actually about so and this is fascinating to me because i read it for this honors this honors class um because i'm developing my my thesis proposal in there um and the tragedy of the commons was and is a big part of it or a kind of a a starting point i guess you would say so i was like i should probably read this paper that i'm referring to so i read it and i was like oh this is (laughs) not what i not what i expected um, because so his whole his idea is you know how do we solve this tragedy of the commons that I just explained well um, mutually coercion mutually agree, mutual coercion mutually agreed upon um, so you know we have all these rules and we all say okay it's bad if all the grass is gone so let's all agree to have you know four cows and then the grass won't be gone mm-hmm. um, and you know maybe we enforce that through having some sort of police force or you check your cows in you know whatever yeah. um, 
you could think of any any number of ways to enforce that. Um, but his was actually about population. The the paper, like the paper is about how we deal with the, the issue of overpopulation and his idea is, well, we just mutually agree and mutually enforce that people shouldn't have as many kids. Which you don't really talk about that as like that was his whole that was the point. That was the argument of the paper. And what year was this paper written? Nineteen sixty one? Yeah, so the population was, what, it's got to be at least a billion less than it is today? Something like that, yeah. And we still haven't haven't overpopulated yet. But back then, he was already on board with this whole, we need to have less. It's like a Malthusian, almost. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that was just fascinating to me because I, I know you said the worst paper ever. I don't know if I've read the worst paper ever <laughs> yet. I'm, I'm, I'm loath to say that until I've read every single paper that exists and then I can make that judgment. Um, and probably not a, you know, then it's at least a well-informed judgment uh-huh. if, if a normative one. Um, but yeah, I just I was kind of flabbergasted that I read that and I was like, oh, that's, no one told me that was what this paper was about yeah. when I read it, when we talked about it in, you know, Econ 103 or whatever. So the lesson to be drawn from that is read read the important works that you're referencing. It's if nothing else, you'll be like, oh, this is actually what that's about. Okay, good to know. You know. So back to your project now. It's about trees. It is about, <laughs> there, it's about trees. There's trouble in the forest. Well, sort of. Um, so it started out. It has morphed several times, um, but I started out kind of thinking about deforestation. So okay, picture this: I'm in the Cherokee National Forest. <laughs> it's October of 2018, and um, it's right near the border of North Carolina and Tennessee. And we, we were driving along uh, the road, and I we got out at an overlook, and there's a little, like, plaque there, you know, by the U.S. Forest Service. And I read it, and it's like, oh, you know, private landowners de- devastated this and cut down all the trees, and then the government took over, and now it's the beautiful forest you see today, basically. I have a picture of this plaque, if anyone is really curious, and I will show it to you because I took a picture of it. Because I was like, this is going to be important later in my life. Here we are. Uh, um, <laughs> so, And by here we are, you mean this podcast. Yes, that was yeah. what it was all leading up to. Uh-huh. Um, so I, I was like, that's not what I was taught in Econ 103. Like, shouldn't private property rights incentivize an owner to take care of their resources? Um, so I was like, okay, file this away, you know. Um, and I kind of developed it as an idea for a research project, and I started researching it independently last semester. Um, wasn't able to devote too, too much time to it, but I kind of looked into it um, with help and advice from a Mercatus PhD fellow um, who does really interesting research on environmental econ. Um, and so I kind of had, I was like, oh, maybe I should do this for my, my honors research class um, and develop it into a thesis. Um, and for a variety of reasons, um, I've gotten like really, really good feedback from the econ department. They've been incredibly helpful in this, um, but decided not to do that specific question. You know, why did deforestation happen in the Cherokee National Forest in the 19th century? Um, because it's a lot of historical research. Um, it crosses into sociology. There's not a ton of data out there. Um, it, I spent a lot of time combing through like Census Bureau records, like microfilm from the 1860s. Um, which, while fun in its own weird way, is, you know, not something that is especially, you know, time. If I'm looking for a lot of data, that's not really the question that I want to look uh, go through. Um, and I wanted to practice using econometrics and stuff like that um, for my thesis. So I kind of pivoted away, but I still was like, okay, I want to look at forest use and I want to look at um, resources and, and an ownership and how ownership interacts with the way that we use forests. Um, so I'm working on my thesis proposal now, and I'm not going to give too many details because I don't know all the details <laughs> yet. <laughs> um, 
but it's about the United States. It's about um, public and private ownership because I'm kind of interested in, okay, like so the government owns some forests, private landowners own some. Does that have an impact on the logging industry? Like who owns the forest? Um, Because the Forest Service, which um, I didn't know until I really started researching this, um, national parks a lot of the time are like, okay, we don't touch this. Um, the Forest Service is like, okay, we're going to manage this forest, and that can include selling some of the products of the forest. But the whole idea is that it's sustainable, so it's not like we're going to cut down all the trees, um, which it turns out might have actually been what happened in, in the Cherokee National Forest. But I don't really know enough about that to, to, to really comment on that, but it is a very interesting um, historical event. So, yeah, so I'm, I'm working on my thesis proposal now, um, and then I'll, I would start that next fall in, Oct- in August of 2020. Can you kind of go through what the basic economic intuition is of private and public? The Ecom 103 intuition of private and public. Can you kind of run through that for listeners? Yeah. So the way it was taught to me and the way I understood it was that, um, I don't know, think about something that you own. You know, you own, I don't know, your bike or something. If you own this bike and you can say, this is my bike, I bought it with my money and no one else can do anything to it without my permission – Um, you're probably going to, you know, change the tire when it gets flat. You're probably going to be careful about who you loan it out to. You're probably going to take good care of it. You're going to, you know, but if there's just a bike and you don't own it and it's like sitting in your driveway one day and you're like, huh, I wonder whose bike that is. Like, you're not really going to, if something breaks, you're not going to fix it. You might use it, but you might not worry as much about running into something. You know, you hit a tree by accident or something. You're like, oh, well, you know oh, well, you know, not my bike. I'm just going to put it back where it came from or whatever. Um, I don't advise doing this with bikes that you see by the side of the road. Yeah. Just, but, so we're clear. Um, don't yep. misuse other people's <laughs> property. <laughs> yep. But the whole idea is basically if you own something, you have the incentive to take care of it because one day you either might give it away to somebody else or you might sell it. Um, and so you, the idea is, oh, you want it to be in better condition there. Um, and public ownership is when the state owns it, which is different from – common ownership which is what it's pretty much contrasted with is like if nobody owns the bike so that nobody owns the bike you own the bike the government owns the bike very very simplistically um if nobody owns the bike then nobody's going to benefit from the sale of it nobody's going to give it to their kids one day nobody has the incentive to really make sure that it's in tip-top shape mm-hmm. and if and if the government owns the bike then the government is the one who you know it depends on what the, it, what the government would be able to do with it so is the government going to be able to sell the bike in a couple years you know is there someone that they're going to give it to um, this kind of breaks down since it's the government and a bike, and I'm like sure. failing to think of good applications. For I mean, that. I think the the go-to example that professors often give is you know a rental car versus your right. car. Yeah, and but even then, with a rental car, I always have a pr- trouble with that one because it's like, well, I'm going to pay. That. <laughs> There's going to be a problem if I bring this rental car back with a dent in it. They're going to say, "What happened?" That's to true. You? <laughs> you know, but you might drive it faster. I might drive it faster. Yeah. I would do that with my own car, probably. But you might, you that's, might, a, that's, that's a me problem. <laughs> <laughs> you might you might squeal the tires. Right, 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 right. Because <clears throat> they don't, because you, you don't benefit from the future use of it. Right. Someone else does. Right. And while we do care about other people, we care about other people in general less than we care about ourselves. Mm-hmm. Not only that, but you're also bearing the future costs uh, if you own it. If you yes. don't own it, you yep. can just pass it on. Yep. Yeah, for sure. All right, so... Molly, I mentioned in the intro that you are going to Oxford next semester. I am. Which is cool. Oxford, England, I should mention as well, not Mississippi. Um, you're Isn't not go- Oxford in Mississippi? That's where Ole Miss is. Yeah. Oh. I was, uh, you, could I be, you could be transferring to Ole Miss. I, I just could. wanted to be clear. Yeah, you, I are, you are 
studying abroad in Oxford next semester. And so you'll be leaving us as webmaster. We have two webmasters at the Econ Society. Molly is one. Ryan Fraser is the other. Yes. Uh, Ryan will be all alone now. Yes, but, but he will do a great job. I have great faith in you, Ryan. He will do a great job. Ryan, if you're listening out there, you're going to do great. <laughs> but you'll be leaving us. We are bestowing the title Webmaster Emerita on you. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. So I, yeah. Well, an <laughs> I'm announcing that. I'm announcing that here on, on this podcast. But what was that? What was that like to be super involved in a student organization and to uh, create and run our website and our blog? It was great fun, honestly. I think it's just it's important to I, I kind of weaseled my way into it, I think. <laughs> um, I just had been talking with Nick, or I think it was like in the big Econ Society group meet. Nick was like, can anyone make a flyer for this thing? And this I was, was Nick like, McFadden, yes. our former president, who was the guest of a previous episode yes. of this wonderful podcast. Yes. Yeah. So he was like, can anyone make a flyer for this? And I was like, I can. I know how to use Canva. <laughs> and that's how it all began. Um, and that was an advantage you had on everyone else. That was an advantage I had on everyone else, um, <laughs> apparently. So, yeah, so it kind of just started that way, and I, you know, did what I enjoyed, and it turned into an actual position. So, um, you know, I, like I've said, I love writing. That's my thing. That's what I really enjoy doing. I like editing. Again, your book taught me everything I know. <laughs> um, and so it's just been it's been a great experience. It's fun to be involved. Um, I have a great e-board, um, and I would I would definitely recommend, you know, taking a – a leadership position and one that that uses your talents so you know know yourself know what you're good at and then say okay how can I use what I'm good at don't just do something because it's a leadership position or because you know it, it goes on your resume I know you've probably heard that a thousand times and you know also who am I to be giving advice I'm 20 years old but like <laughs> from what I from what I've learned yeah um you know know yourself and know what you're good at first and then say okay how can I use what I'm good at um whether that's in a leadership position or not yeah, well, you, you've mentioned now your book many times, <laughs> and you've mentioned the website. Yeah. It wouldn't be a conversation with you if we didn't talk about fonts a little bit. Oh, yes. So you have a <laughs> you have an ability to identify fonts. I do. That's a little bit concerning it's sometimes. Yes. What are your favorite and least favorite fonts, just so we can get okay. them out there? Because um, I know this is something that you are very passionate about. It is. This changes a lot. Uh, Comic Sans is my least favorite font. I'm sorry. <laughs> well, that, just, that doesn't change. Yeah, that doesn't change. Yeah. That, um, yeah, I, I don't really think I need to explain myself further there. Comic Sans <laughs> is just never appropriate in any situation. Um, so you just don't like fun? Is that what it is? Yes, I don't like okay. fun. <laughs> I like readability, actually. Uh-huh. Um, big fan of Times New Roman. Pretty basic answer. I know this sounds like I know like two fonts. I promise. Mm-hmm. Um, I'll mention Highway Gothic. It's a good one. Um, that's the font that's on all the highways in the United States. Um, yeah, this which was, I believe, specially made for highway signs, yes. wasn't it? It was. It was. Which is very cool. There's like a font making. I think they're based in like Boston, maybe Cambridge, some up there, and like their whole job is to just create fonts, which is an alternate career that I'm seriously considering. Yeah. So, yeah. 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 So, so yeah. Big big Times New Roman fan. Uh, Palatino Linotype is a good one. That's a good one. That's the kind of obscure font knowledge <laughs> we were looking for, Molly. Thank you. Yeah. Can you say that again? Palatino Linotype. Palatino Linotype. I also might be saying it. I don't know how you pronounce it. I just only see it on my computer Well, obviously, screen. yeah. Um, and you can check all these out on like Google Fonts, right? Isn't that a thing? Google Fonts is a thing. I'm thinking of, like, these are all on Microsoft Word. Okay. Except Highway Gothic, obviously. I yeah. I don't think you can access that as a civilian. <laughs> <laughs> you need a security clearance to get to Highway Gothic. Right. Yeah, that's government right. property. Yeah. 
What are you most excited about on your uh, upcoming trip to England and Oxford? Oh, my gosh. Good question. Oh, so much. So much. Um, I'm excited about the way the, like, actual school works. This is really nerdy, but... <laughs> It's a tutorial system. It's also an econ podcast, so don't feel bad. You're all nerds. Embrace it. Um, Yeah, so it's, it's, I designed four, like, basically independent studies. They're tutorials. So I'm going to meet with a tutor who's like an expert in their field at Oxford. um, And I'm going to meet with two of them um, each for an hour a week. And they're going to say, here's some books to read, here's some papers to write, go to the library, have fun, Uh, which is basically my dream in life. And so. so I'm really excited for that. I did a lot of – I designed a couple of international economics um, tutorials, um, one about healthcare, one about the history of economics. So no matter what I get, I'm super excited to be studying that. Um, I also want to go to the Eagle and Child, which is where Tolkien and Lewis used to meet. Um, that's pretty awesome, and I want to uh, J.R.R. Tolkien, author yeah. of Lord of the Rings, and C.S. Lewis, author of Narnia, among other things. Yeah, sorry. I was going with the nerd theme. So I yeah, well, I – yeah, well, <laughs> You're right. You're right. Econ, econ nerds. Econ nerds. Okay, They're sure. not econ people, okay. unfortunately. <laughs> Although, if we talk to Marcus Sher long enough, that's, see, that's they become econ that's what people. It is. I'm around Marcus, and yeah. I just think that those are econ. Those things. are you're econ right. people, basically. Right. Yeah. How is it different than? I mean, that's totally. That's just a totally different take on things from the way we do it here. Yes. Um, yeah. Are you going to talk about higher education now? Yeah, why don't we talk about <laughs> oh higher education? Gosh. So so what's the what's the um you know, Oxford and Cambridge have basically been two of the best universities in the world for you know, over 500 years. Longer than we've been a country. I think it's fair to say, yeah. And they do things this way. Why? Well, they also have lectures at Oxford. Yeah. This is part of the study abroad program too mm-hmm. that I'm only doing this. Mhm. Yeah. But why do you think it is that, you know, that they're always the best or one of the best, and yet we don't all do that? That's a good question. Uh, I think part of it is just what's feasible, honestly. Um, and also the attitude towards learning, I think, is just different. Um, I think it's harder to come at learning as a totally consumer good when you have to participate so actively in it um like at oxford and i'm forgetting the word for the kind of good that it is when you when it a co-production co-production good when you which is a education is a classic example where you both have like the student has to participate and the teacher has to participate um a teacher can't make you learn a professor can't make you learn but it's a lot harder to learn when you're just teaching yourself and there's no professor or teacher involved it's possible and it's a great experience but it, you know, it's it's always good to have somebody guiding you through it, you know. Um, so anyway, where was I going with this? Yeah, just the, just the attitude towards learning. I think it's easy to sit in a lecture, and I'm not pointing fingers. Like, I do this, too, is sit in a lecture and just, I will receive this lecture. And when I'm done receiving this lecture, I will zip up my backpack, and I will leave. Mm-hmm. And I think the tutorial system kind of forces you to, to not do that. Now, I haven't done it, so I don't know, but just from the way it's been <laughs> described to me, um, I'm excited for that. But, yeah. Sounds like a lot more interactive approach, and maybe it's a way to weed out uh, less inclined students. Yeah, that system we don't have here in the U.S. That's <laughs> yeah, for sure. For sure, yeah, I, I, that sounds accurate to me. <laughs> we're really, we're really grateful that Molly was on the podcast. Um, yeah, we really for having me. A- absolutely, really enjoyed the interview, but um, wanted to get you on here because I know you like talking, <laughs> and not only do yeah. you like talking, you've always liked talking, and you have a story about this you want to share. I do. So. When I was little, my dad would drive me to school. So I'm like, I'm like four or five ish. 
and I liked talking a lot, still do, and my dad was kind of tired of me talking. Um, we used to, like, make up poems in the car together, and then, you know, so at least that was, like, guided talking, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> but then, you know, that we finished our poem, whatever. And so my dad just finally told me to start counting to a thousand. And then when I got to a thousand, I started counting by twos. So he could get me to shut up and stop talking. <laughs> so yeah. So I, I don't I don't know how that was less annoying than just like a four year old counting to a thousand, but you know, yeah. whatever. To each his own, I guess. I guess. Maybe the maybe Hi, dad, just, I love you. <laughs> maybe just the fact that it was predictable. I, I guess. I don't know. Yeah, I guess. Yeah, I guess it's important. I also don't think I could count to a thousand when I was five, but I'm sure you learned works. some math along the way too. That's I did. I did. Yeah. <laughs> Well, my my sister was just telling me there's a, um, uh, she got at this question by a little kid asked her this question and said, "Can you name fifty words without an A in them in fifty seconds?" No, <laughs> I cannot. No, you actually totally can. You just count to fifty. What? There are no A's from one to fifty. There, you actually don't encounter an A in any number until you get to a thousand. That's terrifying. Yeah. Wow. And you think about it, and you're like, wait a minute, that actually makes sense. Huh. Well, that's good. So you learned something. If you didn't learn anything from all of the other incredible <laughs> knowledge that we've gone through on this podcast, you at least learned that there are no A's in any, in any, yes. uh, in any numbers under 1,000. Yeah, and so, that will serve you well. Absolutely. Uh, well, thank you so much for being here, Molly. Yeah, thanks for and having me. And on behalf of Econ Society, thank you for your help as webmaster. Yeah, thanks and for putting we, up with my editing comments. I'm sure they're <laughs> annoying. <laughs> and we are more than happy to give you the honorary title of Webmaster oh, Emerita. I appreciate it. So, All right. Loose Vegan Indeterminate is a production of the Economic Society at George Mason University and is now available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Podcast Addict, Overcast, Radio Public, Pocket Casts, and Breaker. Special thanks to the wonderful folks at WGMU, including General Manager Henry Fisher, Production Director Grace Snyder, and Faculty Advisor Roger Smith. You can follow the Economic Society on Twitter. Our handle is at EconSocietyGMU. To see our blog or upcoming events, you can find us on the web at go.gmu.edu slash econsociety. Until next time, abstain from that which is another's, make a becoming use of that which is your own, and whatever you do, don't be a man of system. Catch you next time on Loose Vegan Indeterminate.